If you have your copy of Scripture, please turn it to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24 this morning. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. Follow along as I read that this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice who's made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, and judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray real fast this morning. Father, thank you for your word. It's faithful. It's true. I pray that it would speak to our hearts and lives this morning as we look at it and as we hear the preaching and the proclamation of your word this morning. May we be faithful to be obedient to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to like to watch a show on PBS called the Antiques Roadshow. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but I used to just enjoy sitting there and and watching that show. It was because I found it funny when uh, somebody would bring something into the Antiques Roadshow and they had no clue what they really had or the value of something, and then it would be given a high appraisal value. And, And I just like to watch their reaction. I don't know if you've ever had something like that happen to you where you you had something that you thought wasn't worth much but it turned out to be valuable. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened. I used to go to auctions and yard sales and I would buy stuff and then resell it on eBay to try to make some extra money um, when I was a, a student pastor and, and tried to supplement my income in all kinds of different ways. And one time I bought this photo album for a dollar and I sold it on eBay for nearly a hundred dollars. And so um, that was something that, that uh, worked out nice for me. And one of the Antiques Road shows in 2004, a man brings in a pocket watch from Swiss watch manufacturer Uh, Patek Philippe, which is one of the most prestigious watch manufacturers in the world. The watch had been handed down in the family from father to son for three generations. And the man had previously had the watch appraised for $6,000, which seems like a pretty good sum for a pocket watch. But on the Antiques Roadshow, 
it appraised for $250,000. However, that was also low because in 2006, the watch went to auction and it brought $1,541,212. If you don't understand what it is that you are in possession of, there is a danger that you will disregard it or let it go for something worth far less. As we looked last week, we saw that Esau did this with his birthright. He traded it for a bowl of stew. He gave away eternal blessing for instant gratification. That's a bad deal. However, that is what the readers of Hebrews were in danger of doing as well. They were under the threat of persecution and they were being tempted to abort their faith in Christ, to return to their Jewish faith. And so the author gives a contrast to them. He shows them that it was like Mount Sinai, which represents Jewish life under the law. And that's contrasted against the glories of Mount Zion, which is life under the new covenant, which we find is that what we end up finding is that right living flows out of right knowing. And what the author is revealing is that if you know the riches that you possess in Christ, then you wouldn't want to go back to the empty, fleeting pleasures of the world. That is the point. Do you know what you possess in Christ? It is if the author of Hebrews is shouting, hey, don't make the same mistake that Esau made. It proved to be spiritually fatal. And so he draws this sharp contrast between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant. Under the old covenant was the feeling of terror and judgment. One only has to read the descriptive language here to understand that. However, under the new covenant, the feeling is one of joy and celebration with angels and the saints in the presence of God. The old covenant was physical and earthly. The new covenant is spiritual and heavenly. The old covenant put distance between a holy God and sinful people. The new covenant grants access to dwell in the city of the living God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what we see the author making clear in these verses is that those who have trusted in the blood of Christ do not dwell on Mount Sinai which is represented by the law, but instead they dwell in Mount Zion, which is represented by the new covenant. So I want to spend some time on this this morning with you. First, if you have trusted in Christ, you have freedom from the gloomy laws of Sinai. If you have trusted in Christ, you have freedom from the gloomy laws of Sinai. Sinai verses 18 through 21 are summary for us of the God of God's giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Look at the words used to describe the scene blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. It was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The point is, it is terrifying, and this is how. God reveals himself to Moses. Moses had seen God in the burning bush. He had 
seeing God use him to perform miracles before Pharaoh, but now he is filled with fear. Let me ask you a question. Is this how we picture God today? No. In fact, we picture God quite the opposite today. It's like God is Santa Claus. Or like he's like your nice, sweet little grandfather who everyone loves. So why does God appear so terrifying here in the Old Testament? Well, because he's giving the people the law. And why did God give the law? Well, the Apostle Paul answers why God gave the law. He says the law was given to imprison everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He goes on further to explain that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. Listen, by our very nature, we are blind to our sin before a holy God. When we compare ourselves to people, we don't find the holiest person that we can possibly find. We compare ourselves to the most sinful person we can find or the filthiest person that we can find. We say, well, I'm better than a terrorist. Well, yeah, of course, if you're comparing yourself to a terrorist or I'm better than a rapist or I'm better than a child molester. Yeah, that's easy when you compare yourself to those people but at least I'm not as bad as I'm not as bad as that person yeah I have my problems but I'm not as bad as some people we know that God is holy and sure we we can go around and compare ourselves to other people and think that we are somehow holy but when we compare ourselves to the holy standard of God suddenly we're not so holy God is so holy that sin can't even enter his presence. But do we really understand that? Because the law comes in and reveals to us God's absolute holiness. And then we realize just how sinful we are. And we're like Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah did not know he had unclean lips until he saw the holiness of God. The instant he saw the holiness of God, then he knew how sinful he was. You see, the holiness reveals our sinfulness. Yeah, it's true that the old covenant meant an external material approach to God. It meant a distant God of judgment. It meant a reluctant, fearful approach to God. All that is true. But in order to get to Zion, you must go through Sinai. And this is crucial because it reveals the terror of God's law and our sinfulness. It reveals just how sinful we truly are. And instills, the law of God instills some things in us. First, it instills in us that we should fear God's holiness and judgment. That we should fear God's holiness and judgment. 
excuse me, Zephaniah, go back to your mother now. We should fear God's holiness and judgment. The scene at Mount Sinai is a fearful one of darkness, gloom, wind, flashes of lightning, the blast of a trumpet, the earth quaked violently. We don't know whether they could understand the words of God's voice from heaven, but what we do know is that it was so strong that they begged that no further word be spoken. Furthermore, any person or animal that touched the mountain was to be killed from a distance, either by stoning or by arrows. Anyone that touched anything that had touched the mountain where God revealed himself would die. Do we understand the holiness of God? I love what John Calvin says in the opening of the Institutes of Christian Religion. He says this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. He goes on to say this. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, that we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good and pure purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are trumpeted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. He further says that the only way that we can possibly get a clear knowledge of ourselves is to look upon God's face. He says without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. The holiness of God reveals the pride of man. It reveals our self-righteousness. It reveals our hypocrisy. It reveals our sin. Until we have a grasp of who God is as revealed to us in the word of God, we pat ourselves on the back. We flatter ourselves. We think, well, we're not that bad. Calvin goes on to give many biblical examples of men who were constant until they got a glimpse of God's holiness and glory. And they were overwhelmed by and nearly annihilated by the holiness of God. Listen, history is filled with those that feared the holiness of God. John Newton we know what he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Charles Spurgeon talks about the terror of God's law tormenting him before he came to saving faith. Martin Luther hated God's righteousness until he came to understand that God imputes his righteousness to us by faith alone. There's a great article in this past Illinois Baptist paper written by Carrie Campbell called, I Don't Know What I Didn't Know, where she speaks as a recent graduate of Southern Seminary and talks about how much she did not know about God. Listen, the more we know about God and his holiness, the more is revealed to us about our depravity and our sinfulness, which drives us to the cross as our only refuge. And the cross removes the dread of judgment. It does not remove the sense of awe and the sense of amazement at a holy God. It doesn't remove that, that my filth filthiness would be exchanged for his holiness. We just, we are in awe of that. 
We understand that we are sinners, though, before a holy God, which reveals to us our need for a mediator. We need a mediator. Because God is holy, and because we are sinful, we have a problem, right? How can we possibly get to God? On Mount Sinai, Moses and Aaron were only allowed to go up the mountain and into God's presence. The people could not draw near to God through Moses or Aaron. They had their own sins. There was a separation from a holy God. Sinful man could not enter the presence of God. However, Jesus Christ is our sinless high priest. He offered himself as our substitute. This is what the Apostle Paul said. That there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. The law reveals the holiness of God, brings conviction that we are lawbreakers and deserving of God's judgment. That is kind of the whole point. When someone approaches God through the old covenant of the law, they must reluctantly and fearfully approach God because the law is going to condemn them. It only reveals to us that we fall short of the glory of God. The law can, can't make us righteous. The law can't make us perfect. Jesus does that. Jesus is God's mediator that, that paid the price for all that believe. So in order to get to Zion, we must go through Sinai where we encounter the terrors of the law. Because it reveals our sinfulness and our need for a mediator. However, once you get to Zion, why on earth would you want to return to Sinai? That's what the author is saying. Why would you want to return to something that's inferior? Why would you want to trade a closeness with God and the riches and the glories of Christ for distance from God and judgment under the law? What That makes absolutely no sense. The author is describing the place that we have left and the place that they have left. And then he describes where we have come or where they have come. Now, here's the thing. Most people today would say this. Well, well, I'm not in danger of returning to the old covenant. Right? I mean, that's what most of us would say. You, you're sitting there and you'd say, well, I'm not in danger of returning to the old covenant. I have no desire to return to the old covenant. Besides that, it would be far too difficult for us to return to it. It would be far too hard for us to, to keep it. It's not a really a, a, a danger for us. No one wants to return to Sinai. But what I have found is we like to erect our little Sinai's. The little things. What we do is we set up our own little laws. It looks nothing like the real Sinai we read about here, so... So what we do is we set up little rules that we can attain, whether it be some sort of biblical ethic or cultural consensus on social causes, whatever it may be. We set up these little rules that, that I can meet. And we think we're better for it. Well, I, I can meet this little rule and this little rule. And it transfers into legalism. Our little Sinai's are ultimately little laws that says, if you do these things, if you do this little law, if you obey this little rule, 
then you will be godly. It makes you more godly. And ultimately, our legalism always leads to judgmentalism because it says, if you don't follow these rules, if you don't follow my laws, then you're not godly. So here's my little Sinai. Here's my little laws that I set up in order for me to obey. And then what I like to do is say, well, then you have to obey my laws. And if you're not obeying my laws, then you're not godly. You see how that's a problem? We do that. We like to imagine that our list of rules somehow elevates us. And at the same time, it gives us a standard to measure others by. And the only standard which we have to measure ourselves by, church, the only standard that you should ever measure yourself by is the holiness of God. And guess what? Everyone falls short of that standard. Every single one of us. Which is why we need a mediator, which is Jesus Christ. And so we see that the law, we, we should fear God's holiness and judgment. And we see that it reveals to us that we need a mediator. That's the whole point of, of him talking about Mount Sinai. But what's the point of him talking about Mount Zion? Let's look at this. If you have trusted in Christ, you have come to Zion's grace. If you have trusted in Christ, you have come to Zion's grace. We have this beautiful transition for us. This distinction between Sinai and Zion reveals that Christ perfectly fulfills what Sinai represented. As Christians, we don't gain access to God by following the law. We gain access to God through Christ who fulfilled the law. Instead of fear and separation, we have joy and inclusion. Sinai stands as a mountain of, of fulfillment. We have this beautiful description of the grace of Zion. We are not identified where God's law was given, but where it was fulfilled. The new covenant is infinitely more excellent than the old covenant, and its benefits infinitely more beneficial than the old because of the divine grace that is given. And he goes on to list seven privileges mentioned about Coming to Mount Zion. So I want to go over those with you this morning. Seven privileges. Privilege number one. The privilege of inclusion in the city of the living God. The privilege of inclusion in the city of the living God. We have a description of this new place where believers have come. In fact, there are three terms given to it. First, it's called Mount Zion. We come to Mount Zion. This was the name of the stronghold in Jerusalem that King David conquered, and it would become synonymous with Jerusalem. It represented the place where God, the king, dwells with his people. The second description is given is the city of the living God. The book of Hebrews mentions the city more than any other book in the Bible. We can look back to chapter 11, verse 10, to know that the, what that the author is speaking about. The city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It is a city that God prepared for the Old Testament saints who died in faith and received the promises. Yes, 
while it is true that we spiritually dwell there now, there's also a sense in which it is yet to come. The city is not an ordinary city. It's the city of the living God. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, there is a warning to take care that no one would have an evil, unbelieving heart and fall away from the living God. In chapter 9, verse 14, we are told that the blood of Christ would cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is opposed to legalistic, ritualistic, dead religion through the, the, uh, uh, that thinking that we can somehow enter into relationship with God through rituals because we only come through Christ. We enter a relationship with the living God through Christ, not dead religion. There's also a third term here that the author uses to describe the same thing, and that's the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the holy city that John saw coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride for a husband. In the book of Revelation, he goes on to say that it represents God dwelling among his people and promises that when it comes down, God will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be death, crying, pain, or mourning. The promise is will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus. The point is that we have this inclusion in the city of the living God. We have the joys and the glories of heaven spiritually now and physically in the future. And so it's the, the whole idea is that spiritually we should be looking to heaven that one day we will be there physically. So we have that privilege. But we also have the privilege of being surrounded by innumerable angels and feastal gathering, it says. The privilege of being surrounded by innumerable angels and feastal gathering. Moses tells us that myriads of holy ones attended the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 33.3. From the book of Daniel, we read that thousands attended him, the ancient of days being God. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. King David said the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The text captures it well, that the angels are innumerable, innumerable, and we join with them when we worship God. So there's this sense that, that is now happening, but there's a future sense as well. We read about it in Revelation chapter 5. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living Creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The emphasis is that one day we will gather in a feastal assembly with innumerable angels at Mount Sinai what the angels do it says they they blew their trumpets that terrified God's people but we are to see ourselves on Mount Zion dressed in feastal attire worshiping in awe our God side by side with angels now we may we may not experience anything quite like that on earth But I would strongly encourage you to work on your worship. Here in Hebrews, it's called a 
feastal gathering. This was a celebration. It was a joyous occasion. That's what it means. I would challenge you this morning not to have apathetic worship. Not to be ho-hum. In fact, I would say that apathetic worship that says, I don't care, and worship that degrades into it has to be about my style, I would say that is sinful. I once saw a thing that said, you worship God your way, I will worship God his. Our worship is a celebration of what God has done for us. It is a joyful occasion when we gather here for corporate worship. When we come together for corporate worship to sing praise and to hear the preaching of his word and to pray together, it should be filled with joy. It should be a joyous occasion. If it is not, it only reveals that we don't understand the majesty and the glory of our God. And we are not focused on the great salvation that he has given to us by his grace. You should be in here celebrating the salvation that you have through Jesus Christ. Man, that is something to celebrate. Don't come in here on Sunday morning and make worship about you. Because it's not about you. How often do we come in here with a mindset that it's about me? That this, my singing is about me. And well, what if somebody hears me? Or I don't, what if I raise my hand and somebody sees me? Or what if so what is so-and-so thinking about me? Or what if I sing too loud? And, or what if I make a mistake? Or what? It's not about you. There's absolutely nothing in worship that is supposed to be about you. It's all about God. And what he has done for you. And that should be reflected in our music, in our giving, in our preaching. It should be reflected in every aspect of our life. We should have some joy. We should have some pep in our step we should care about the words that we are singing and the words that are being preached we should stop and think is this reflective of what God has done for me is this reflective of what is taught in scripture is what I'm singing joyful for what God has done for am I singing joy back to God am I celebrating what God has done and that's why we come in here. Sometimes we're, you know, our heads are down. And sing about praising God and this is how we do it. There should be some joy, church. So I just challenge you. If, if you think that, that what I just read in the book of Revelations with myriad and myriad of angels saying, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive 
power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing that should be reflected in our worship here on earth, not just in heaven. If you think that that is all ho-hum and that shows apathetic worship, then by all means, keep being apathetic. But my challenge to you is to get rid of your apathy and get some joy in your heart for what God has done because you come in here on Sunday to praise and give joy to God for what he's done for you. And we singing with the angels and the myriads of angels. And as you gather together with other saints for worship, may our joy be reflective. But he gives a third privilege. The privilege of gathering together as the church. The privilege of gathering together as a church. Nine times in the New Testament we have this word firstborn. Seven of them refers to Jesus. One of them refers to the firstborn in Egypt. And here it is plural. It refers to the, to the entire company of God's redeemed people. When it says that. So when, when, we, when we read it about the firstborn, it's referring to the entire company of the people of God. It says, and to the assembly of the firstborn. This is the church. The church, you know what, what Jesus said about the church, right? It will be built on the rock and against it the gates of hell will not prevail. The church, the church which is the spouse, the body of Christ, the temple of God, where, they, where he inhabits forever. This is the church, you know, that which Christ loves and gave himself for, which he washed in his own blood that he would sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word of God, that he would present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it would be holy and without blemish, the church. Why is it here that firstborn refers to the church? I believe it's for a very good reason. First, it is revealed to us that the church with Christ, its heir, is, is heir of all things as stated in Hebrews chapter 1. The prominent theme in scripture associated with being the firstborn is not one of priority, but one of right to inheritance. Secondly, it implies that the church's glory is superior to that of celestial spirits. Redeemed sinners and not fallen angels are God's firstborn. Third, it gives great contrast from Judaism to Christianity. Israel was God's Firstborn among the nations of the earth, but the church is his firstborn among the inhabitants of heaven. Now stop and think about this. The church is raised to the, to the highest dignity with privileges. We have this dignity of sonship, and it, and it, is, and it is greater than that of angels. And this is solely based on our union with Christ. Through Christ, we have been made a kingdom and priest by God's gracious adoption. We have not only been made members of his family, but heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. 
This is true of all the saints, of all generations. What a glorious privilege. There is no second sons or third sons or fourth sons in the church. Every single one of us gets the big inheritance because we are all firstborn through Christ. But wait, there is more because it talks about us in heaven. Did you see that in the assembly of the feastal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven? Some translations say whose names are written in heaven. I like that. Our names are written in heaven with the saints that are already in heaven. We are all the body of Christ. The family is never Broken. It is as if we are already there. Here's the thing. Those who profess Christ here on earth might make it on the church roll. But only those who possess faith in Christ, names are written in heaven. Your name being written in heaven assures you of the right to enter heaven. Jesus said, rejoice because your names are written in heaven in Luke 10, 20. The Apostle Paul speaks of, of names written in the book of life in Philippians 4.3. Some would say, uh, is, what is the book of life? The book of life, which is referred to also um, in the book of Revelation, that is a book of God's elect. It is the roll call for God's elect. And his eternal, immutable designation of them under grace and glory. Now some of you might say, well, well what are you saying? God's elect. What do you mean that the book is the role of God's elect? Well, I mean, just what I say. It is a role of God's elect. And just so we can prove that by scripture, let's read some that support that. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. How about Revelation 13 eight? And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So when is someone's name written in the book of life? Before the foundations of the world. Before the world was even in existence, the names were written in the book of life. Written in heaven. And we don't know whose names are written. I don't know whose names are written. You don't know whose names are written. But we know this. The church will go on and keep going on because God said so. And we have this wonderful privilege of gathering together as an assembly with one another. And that should excite us. You should feel like you should wake up on Sunday morning and feel like I can't wait to get to church. You should wake up and say, I can't wait till Sunday rolls around so I can gather together and worship with my church. So I can gather with like-minded people 
and worship God together. That's how you should feel. I'd venture to guess most of us don't feel that way. I'd venture to guess that sometimes we just come to church because what we do. Not really excited about being here. The point is, we have this privilege of gathering together. It's a privilege. You should want to be here. You should be excited about being here. I just had a conversation with folks the other day, and I said, I said, you know why, why churches don't grow? is because our people aren't really excited about being there. There's no excitement. They just go. So we have this privilege of gathering together as the church. But then we have this privilege, fourthly, of coming to God, the judge of all. You might read this and think, well, how in the world can that be a privilege? Coming to God as judge of all. The answer is threefold. First, we must remember that this is written to the church under the threat of persecution. And therefore, they can rest in the fact that one day God will judge all their enemies who do not repent. It is a different thing to come before a judge to be tried and sentenced than coming before a judge because you have favorable access. In fact, Revelation chapter 18, speaking of Babylon, reads, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Secondly, as judge, God is also a rewarder of all that was done for the name of Christ. Scripture makes this clear. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. Thirdly, it is a privilege because we come to the judge who is God over everything. Stop and think about the God. That is a God over all things. Not just some things. But over everything. And if we would realize that, that he is God over everything. It, it curbs our sinful disposition. Would you walk into a courtroom and commit a crime in front of the judge then why would you do it in front of God who is God over everything why would we why would we do such a thing God will discipline us if we do that sometimes severely we won't lose our salvation but he will bring discipline in our life and at his judgment seat all of the things which we did that amount to wood, hay, and stubble, will be burned up. So we have this privilege that enables poor sinners like you and I, called by the gospel, to approach the judge of all things upon his bench so that we can approach without fear because of faith in Christ. And so it is a great privilege. He talks about another privilege. We have the privilege of being the Spirit's of the righteous made perfect. Of being the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It is interesting that this follows judge of all. It reveals to us that the saints had no fear of God. There is now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. This is a reference to the Old Testament believers who have passed through death. 
They have yet to receive their new resurrection body, which awaits the second coming of Christ. But their spirits are made perfect. They are absent from the body and present with the Lord. They no longer have the temptation of sin. Their righteousness is now complete in Christ. And though we are still in this body, one day we will reach the end of this race. And we will be, be we this race that we've been engaged in all along. And we will have a perfect body. All the duties and difficulties of this life will be over. All the temptations and tribulations will be gone. Then we will be completely delivered from sin and sorrow, labor and trouble, which in this life we were exposed to. Finally, we will enter our rest and reward and we will be in the immediate presence of God. I'm perfectly happy with all of these saints in heaven. We have this privilege of being spirits of the righteous made perfect. We have the privilege of coming to Jesus, our mediator of a new covenant. I'm running out of time, but this is really the best of all. The name Jesus is used here because in his incarnation, he saves people from their sins. He was a man like us, and he was the man for us. Jesus as God in the flesh is the only, only one that can be our mediator. He's the only one that can mediate our sins. Between, he is our mediator between the Holy Father and us, sinful creatures. This, again, is a contrast to the Old Covenant. Moses was the middleman between God and Israel, but Moses was merely a man. He was a fallen descendant of Adam. He gave God's law to the people, but he was incapable of making honorable by perfect obedience. Christ was the surety of the covenant. Moses did not confirm the covenant by offering himself as a sacrifice. Christ did that. Moses was far short of Christ. As Christians, we come to Zion, all the mercy, all the grace, all the glory of the new covenant. Here's the beauty for the church. We have personal interest in the mediator of the new covenant. Because he is able to save us to the uttermost. This is the essence of our Christian faith. That Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He obtained deliverance from the curse that accomplished, that accompanied the old covenant. Christ as mediator offers God our prayers. He offers God our praises. He brings down uh, uh, for us the, the ability to praise and worship God. Change is hard. Right? For most people, change is difficult. I think you can almost hear the old guard saying, why do we need this new covenant? Why do we need something new? The old one has always worked. Isn't the old one good enough? But the author of Hebrews is saying loud and clear, the old is obsolete. We don't come by the old covenant. Lastly, we have the privilege of coming to forgiveness because of the sprinkled blood of Jesus. It speaks of the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel 
called for vengeance and justice. God said that his blood was crying to him from the ground. Christ's blood provides forgiveness and blessing to be bestowed on those for whom it was shed. The blood of Christ sprinkled on the believer speaks of mercy and forgiveness. Jesus' blood is better than our blood. It's better than the blood of bulls. It's better than the blood of goats. It is the only blood that can atone for our sin. If by faith you are sprinkled with his blood, then you have the joy of knowing that God has forgiven you of all your sins. The blood of Christ takes that which is impossible and makes it happen. It's impossible for us to get to God, but the blood of Christ makes it happen. What a privilege to be sprinkled by the blood of Christ and experience forgiveness. In conclusion this morning, I want to give you some application. Here's my question to you. Where are you dwelling? Are you dwelling on Mount Sinai or are you dwelling on Mount Zion? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, are you trying to earn God's acceptance by keeping the law? If this is you, if you think that somehow, if you do enough good or you keep the law enough, that you're going to earn God's acceptance, you're going to earn acceptance with a holy God, then you should be terrified. Because it is impossible to meet the demands of God's holiness. No one can do it. If you're trying to do it, then you're dwelling on Mount Sinai. And that's a fearful and gloomy and deadly place. It does not lead to heaven. If you trusted in Christ, then you're dwelling on Mount Zion. If that is you this morning, if you say, Pastor, yes, I I dwell on Zion, then I would challenge you this morning. Stay focused on what Christ has done for you. Do not lose focus. Do not make external rules and guidelines for people to follow. Do not try to get people to dwell on Sinai, but have joy and excitement because you have freedom from Sinai. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Coloss. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is my challenge to you. Seek things above. That is where our treasure is. Don't get sidetracked. Don't forget about it. Don't don't think that you need to seek the things on this earth. It is a lifelong endeavor. Your Christian life is. If you lose sight of the benefits of Zion, you will be tempted just like Esau to trade it in. Just like he did his birthright. We have this great treasure in Christ. Don't trade it for the empty pleasures of this world. Stay focused, church. Secondly, I'd say this. Maintain a healthy balance between close fellowship with the Father and a reverential awe of His holiness. We have this wonderful privilege of drawing near to His throne of grace like we read about in Hebrews chapter 4. And that is awesome that we can come to Him with every need and we receive the grace 
that we need for every single day. However, as we will read later, we must remember that he is a consuming fire. He is holy. And so we don't just flippantly draw near to God. Fellow Christians, we must not stray off course towards Sinai. Jesus had met all the demands of Mount Sinai in his perfection. He paid the price at Calvary, atop of Mount Zion. So don't go back to Sinai. Don't think that your obedience to the law somehow makes you closer to God. Somehow makes you acceptable. It will only expose you to judgment. So I say rejoice. Rejoice. Christian, rejoice because you are on Mount Zion. Rejoice because the blood of Jesus has covered your sins. Rejoice because... You have access to God's holy presence without fear and judgment. Rejoice in the reality that you have inclusion in the city of God. That you are surrounded by innumerable angels for a feastal gathering. That the privilege of gathering together as a church rejoice. Rejoice for the privilege of coming to God as judge of all. Rejoice for the privilege of being spirits of the righteousness made perfect. Rejoice that we can come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Rejoice because forgiveness has been brought to us by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. Rejoice. Come in here with joy. Praise God with joy. Put some pep in your step. There's nothing wrong with praising God. Get excited to come into church and praise God. If that doesn't create rejoicing in your heart, if the promises of God does not create rejoicing in your heart, I don't know what will. If that doesn't cause you to come into church with thanksgiving for what God has done, I don't know what will cause that. So church, dwell on Zion. We are marching for Zion. Do it with joy. Let's pray.